listening to a podcast from The National. My most immediate concern is in carrying out the purposes of the great work program just enacted by the Congress. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, speaking in 1935 in the midst of the Great Depression. Its first objective is to put men and women now on the relief rolls to work and incidentally to assist materially in our already unmistakable march towards recovery. It had been several years since the US had instigated protectionist trade measures to stem the loss of jobs and the impact on US manufacturing in the wake of the Wall Street crash and various other economic problems that the country was having. Those measures had not particularly helped the situation and jobs and workers were still very much in mind in the 1930s. Unemployment remains a serious problem here as in every other nation. And it is because of this that we've come to recognize the possibility and the necessity of certain helpful remedial measures. The first is to make provisions intended to relieve, to minimize, and to prevent future unemployment. The second is to establish the practical means to help those who are unemployed in the present emergency. Why are we listening to that? Well, because in the last week or so, the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, has potentially instigated another trade war just under a century later. Any way you look at it, it is the largest deficit of any country in the history of our world. It's out of control. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. This is the Business Extra podcast coming to you from the Nationals newsroom in Abu Dhabi. This episode is about trade relations and where we are. A little bit later, we'll get the Chinese perspective on what could potentially be a trade war or not. And in a sec, you'll hear from the EU. But first, let me give you a bit of background of where we are at the moment. Uh, The United States is planning, they haven't done it yet, but they're going to, they say, uh, instigate tariffs on steel and aluminium products from various countries, including China. They could potentially put tariffs on up to $60 billion worth of imports from China. The Chinese, in their turn, have responded by opening a file with the WTO over the uh, tariffs on the uh, steel and aluminium. Uh, And also, they've talked about tariffs on $3 billion worth of imports from the United States. Uh, So it seems like we have, at the very least, three threats, war of words, certainly, and what some people have been concerned about with potentially a trade war. It takes two to start a fight, or possibly three or even more, depending on uh, on how many protagonists we have. Uh, But I think Donald Trump won't necessarily have it all uh, his own way if the end game really is to start a trade war. And certainly, if the 1930s is our only example of what a global trade war looks like, then perhaps we will have to wait and see what a trade war will look like in 2018 onwards. Uh, We are just starting a negotiation with the European Union because they've really shut out our country to a large extent. They have barriers that they can trade with us, but we can't trade with them. They're very strong barriers. They have very high tariffs. We don't. It's just not fair. 
But we went and got the point of view from the European Union and Taina Sateri, who's a trade counselor for the European delegation in Dubai, explained to me the overall vision from the Europeans on what trade relations should be and what the outlook could be for trade with their big partners such as the US and China. For the EU, uh, the biggest exports for, for EU, uh, well, there are actually two parts. So the, the trading goods and, and, of course, recently also more trading services. Uh, so for the EU, uh, the uh, important products to be exported are um, like, um, like cars and other kind of machinery. Uh, this is one of the, the, the major major export uh, products and and then of course uh, services are, are becoming more and more important uh, also um, just to mention eu is also the biggest exporter of uh, agri-food products in the world not only actually uh, exporter but also importer for the eu of course what is also attracting eu as a market is that we have well we have 500 million consumers who are looking for quality goods. And um, we are the largest kind of single market because also what, what, what we consider is, a, is an asset for the EU is that we have uh, transparent rules and regulations amongst us. And then it's also easy for the other trading partners to, to deal with us because they know that all these member states are following the same, the same rules and regulations. And uh, we also consider that we are the most open market for the developing countries uh, because for example it has been estimated that we as a destination are the biggest market for around 80 countries again going back to the evolution of the eu as a block um it started with the member countries and now become as you're saying you know dozens of, of developed countries outside of the region as well um, and uh, those rules have been developed over time there's been a lot of negotiation there's been a lot of treaties um, it's taken a long time to get to the point where um, the EU is at right now um, but you know there are other factors at play as well not just in terms of evolution but in the last 10 years we've experienced you know a an economic crisis all over the world. Um, and the EU went through its own particular uh, period of that. Um, and, and, and so I guess it's natural for people to be saying trade war, thinking about to the last time there was such a period of, of, of downturn in the 1930s uh, with the Great Depression. Um, but the, the EU has been quite good at dealing with um, that downturn right now. I mean, we had a quantitative easing policy for several years under the European Central Bank. Um, various reforms and measures were put in place. There were many crises within the EU itself. You talk about Italy, you talk about Greece, um, other countries as well, Ireland, but they've all come through it. Um, and But, you know, the the interesting factor of those last few years is exports have been quite strong from the EU partly because of the weak euro. But there were other factors going on as well, which has helped trade. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, uh, the, the exports uh, have increased, so from EU to outside uh, the world. Uh, I just so we don't yet have uh, the, all the detailed figures for 2017, but uh, the first indications uh, show that there was uh, just 7% growth for EU exports from 2016 to 2017. So, uh, and through all the bilateral negotiations, what EU has been pushing through, we now have uh, just concluded, for example, the EU-Japan 
the big uh, free trade agreement with Canada. Uh, we have um, several other very important um, bilateral uh, um, free trade agreements. Uh, so all these efforts actually are now uh, we see the fruit. Trade, from what, from what I'm hearing, is that trade doesn't sit still and trade relations don't sit still. That These negotiations take years. I mean, the EU and the GCC has been talking about a uh, free trade agreement for some time now. That's that's an ongoing thing. By the time that's concluded, uh, I don't know how long the process would be. Um, but And in between, other factors come in. So I think that it's worth mentioning that short-term considerations – obviously play a part, but trade relations are very, very long-term and big picture. Yeah, for sure. And uh, as you mentioned, it's true, these uh, trade negotiations, they take a long time. Uh, it has taken a long time, actually, for the WTO, the World Trade Organization, to come what it is now. Uh, we think this is a big achievement and we shouldn't uh, lose the sight. Uh, of course, for example, EU uh, with the EU, U.S., has a long history. U.S. is the most important uh, export uh, market for the EU products. Is, is that a lot of that has to do with cars? That's a big factor, right? A big part. Yeah, uh, cars, uh, machinery, but also chemicals, uh, agri-food. It's uh, several, several things. And of course, I mean, for example, EU and U.S. are so much, I mean, if it's going well for the EU, trade it's going well for the u.s trade and because we are so much interlinked mm -hmm. and also for example for the investments so the eu uh, is investing most in the u.s and similarly u.s to the eu so we are interlinked mm -hmm. of course and like with many other trading partners but just showing the the long-lasting trade relationships we we have what we have had and actually uh, what we want also to develop with other uh, trading partners. I mean, China's been uh, growing. Everyone's seen that over the last decade, two decades. It's emerged as the second biggest economy in the world. Um, and uh, its growth has been nothing short of phenomenal. Um, and you, I think of you know European goods that are going to China. I think of the appetite for Mercedes, BMWs, you know, that, that are coming out of Europe. And, and it, it must be interesting Again, coming back to that whole long-term aspect of trade is, you know, for somebody who started out their career um, in trade relations 20 years ago, they weren't really thinking about China that much. And now, you know, that, that must be most of the conversation. So it's interesting from the EU's perspective, as the EU itself has evolved and has gone through its own big developments like the euro, like adding a huge number of members from the Eastern Bloc, um, that, that at the same time, you're, you're kind of seeing a new big trading partner emerge. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's also the interesting thing. I mean, working in trade is to see all these changes actually within such short timeframes. It, it was really in the 80s and 90s, actually, when we only started actually to speak about globalization. And when actually globalization became a kind of symbol for the free trade. And now actually, it seems that we are we are again going back to the opposite. So the history for trade, it's, it's, it's really, really fascinating. 
And it, it feels like globalization has uh, ended a chapter, if you like. I mean, a lot of people speak about its demise um, and, and the rise of populism as being a, a sign of that. But perhaps maybe it's more about uh, the evolution of, of, of it as a, as a concept that we've We've seen such a, an inc a fast increase in uh, the wealth of the middle classes or the growth of the middle classes in emerging economies like China and India. And so uh, it's done its job, globalization, but perhaps we're dealing with some of the consequences of how that left some people behind in more developed economies like like Europe, like the US. I mean, you know, we, we, we think about the different markets within Europe, as we were talking about, there were, there were various crises over the last few years, and we're seeing a lot of upheaval socially, economically, politically. So going forward, I guess, the big trading blocks like the EU, it's, it's up to you guys to decide what the, what the path forward is. Um, and and what I like, I find interesting, you know, when when if Donald Trump does say, you know, I'm going to put tariffs on this, I'm not going to put tariffs on that, or I'm going to look, you know, target China, or whoever, um, that really it's the beginning of the conversation. And and I noticed while, for example, on the German side, they say, oh, we're very worried about a trade war, and then you have uh, Donald Tusk saying, well, I'm not that worried about a trade war, um, and then various people start to talk about it, and and that's the beginning of a debate about where trade is headed, what trade relations should look like, and and you you mentioned services, that's a big new factor here. We're not just talking about steel bars here. I mean, services are going to overtake goods at some point. I assume, in terms of, of, of their importance and their value? Uh, yes, at, at, uh, at least already now, the part of, of the trade is, is getting bigger and bigger for the services. And of course, this also comes with the, uh, tech, with the develop, development of technologies. Um, so it's also easier, uh, also with the, uh, with the internet and so on. So it's easier for, for people to, to look for services uh, elsewhere. It also, the, the, the way we interact with services as consumers, I have never bought steel bars in my life, but I imagine that if you know, there's a stamp of quality of all things being equal, it's really about price. And I'm not going to be saying, well, I really miss those steel bars from Germany, you know, if I'm getting the same steel bars in China or America. But when it comes to certain services, whether it's consultancy or medical or, or otherwise, I'm going to have an opinion as a consumer that I want the services or education. I want to study in America or Germany or wherever it is uh, versus having to study in China or somewhere else. As services grow in prominence, it's going to be much harder for politics to get involved, I imagine. A uh. consumer will have more personal choice. But of course, also on the other hand, more choice can mean competitive prices. Actually, it can it can mean better quality. Also, uh, uh, in the uh, EU is also looking, for example, in different EU member states, the um, the qualifications for the professionals that they would match each others, so that actually a person could, for example, trust that the doctor in the neighboring country uh, has the same kind of quality level. So also these issues are, are looked at. As technology comes into play and we do things more remotely, although in the past or up till now, you really needed a physical proximity to your doctor, but with telemedicine and other technologies, you can do it through your phone now, at least for an initial triage consultation. So, you know, with services, it's going to become a lot more complex about how you regulate the trade in those services when it's going to, it potentially could be borderless. Uh, yes, actually, these um, 
this reflection has also already started in the in the WTO. So there has been some uh, starts for the uh, chapter for the for the trade and services. I mean, it's not concluded yet, and not all the members are yet in the discussion. But uh, of course, this is something in the future. As we move towards a more digital society, and it's good to hear that the WTO is already cognizant of this, and I'm sure they would be. Um, but then, when you when you have the kind of um, responses to trade as being something similar to the 1930s so long ago when 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 politics were different when uh technology barely existed compared to now uh then that has to set back you know the trade relations in general i mean that must that must feel like a throwback and if you're if you're in the middle of it and you are discussing things with your counterparts in various blocks or countries this can't be helpful as a situation when it's being treated so simplistically but yet on the ground, the actual realities are far more complex. It's not trade can't be simple anymore. Is, is, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and also, of course, the um, what we now speak this the global value chain. So it's it, things are not anymore manufactured in in one place and then exported. It's it's very, uh, for example, EU needs a lot of raw materials as an example, minerals. Um, uh, chemicals which EU is exporting, they are needed for the uh, car industry in in the US or in in Japan. So it's uh, it's difficult to deal without being part of this global uh, trade for the moment. It's, and it's and so from that point of view, it it's kind of I it, it almost feels like any noise that comes out about protectionist measures or retaliation or consequences um, almost seems. Uh, to to almost forget about what re- what's really happening out there in terms of how we do business and how we consume and how we live our lives, and and the, the you know when they initially when there was the talk of Donald Trump putting uh, tariffs on aluminium and steel, and then there was a response on the European side of well maybe we'll put you know tariffs on Levi blue jeans. Um, you know I don't even know if anyone wears Levi's blue jeans anymore. You know it's kind of and Harley Davidsons and and, and and other things that seemed a throwback to the 1980s as much as anything else. And it does it does feel to me that um, we're having some kind of parallel conversation about a global trade environment that no longer exists. Well I suppose it's easier to speak about tariffs just a number uh, rather than maybe some more substantial issues in in the current and kind of modern trade. When with the development of the WTO, the tariffs went down, actually we have seen some non-tariff barriers like legislative issues being actually more burden uh, than than the tariffs. So basically what I just want to say that the the tariffs, tariffs, of course, they don't give the full picture. So it there are other major factors, uh, of course, influencing than, than only the tariffs. It's also interesting to, I mean, to see the development of these tariffs. For example, we still have some tariffs which are from the 20s. Really? <laughs> yeah. For example, I can't remember now exactly what it was, but uh, but there are some. So it's... Uh, they haven't been removed. They, yeah. So there was a historical reason and then nobody actually... <laughs> was checking if, it, if it's still relevant. Maybe, maybe the whole product was not anymore relevant, but it just shows that, that historically the tariffs are set. And then if you, if you are not actually negotiating the, the bilateral free trade agreements, because then you can set different 
yes. tariffs. So, uh, so it's a kind of historical uh, evolution. And that's a good point because as our consumer behavior changes, certain products become less significant. And then you just forget about whatever was the issue 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And I guess it comes around to the whole rationale behind protectionism. You, you know, at the time of um, the, the Great Depression in the United States, following the Wall Street crash, when people suddenly lost jobs um, very quickly in the manufacturing sector because the price of goods just dropped, people weren't buying anymore. Um, and so the, they, you know, the blame was put on too much competition and that if they had tariffs on certain items and goods that it would stop that deflationary spiral and it would get people back in the factories or get people working again. It didn't work because they, they realized that pretty quickly into the middle of the 1930s that it wasn't working and there, there were other unintended consequences. But if it all comes down to jobs and pe keeping people working, then I guess as a broader question I have, as you're somebody who works in trade, it seems counterintuitive that more trade would mean people losing their jobs. I would, I would have thought more trade ultimately between different countries would mean that everybody prospers. But it seems that it's not the case. Well, I think the economists, they, um, of course, uh, some could argue that globalization has brought more jobs, more economic growth. But of course, it depends on the area and, and on which products the country is concentrating to produce. For example, taking example of, of my country, uh, Finland, as you mentioned earlier on, we, we joined in 1995. And before joining, we had very high tariffs on textiles because we wanted to protect the own production. Now, when joining the EU, it's, it's true that then in Finland, the, all the, almost all the textile industry uh, disappeared. So it's, it's, a, it's a fact. But at the same time, there were other opportunities, educating people to, to other jobs, to innovation. So this, this, this was then at that time in Finland the solution to find other ways. And you have a great education system. Exactly. One of the best that, in the yeah, world. Yeah, exactly. So that's actually a reaction, I think, more widely in the EU so that the, the education is one way to counter the uh, negative effects of losing jobs, as an example. More Business Extra in just a moment, but first allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio content or find us as always at thenational.ae. I'm Mustafa Arawi and this is the Business Extra podcast and we're talking about trade. Earlier on, we heard the European point of view. Obviously, within the context of the United States, there is potential for a trade war. However, their main target, the Chinese, may not necessarily be rushing into one and may not necessarily feel that they need to have one even though they are ready and willing, they say, to hit back if they are actually hit with those tariffs that Trump is threatening. Been speaking with the highest Chinese representatives, including the president, and I've asked them to reduce the trade deficit immediately by $100 billion. It's a lot. 
Now, to get the point of view from Beijing, I spoke to Dr. Wallace Cheng. Now, he's the managing director of the International Center for Trade and Sustainable Development, which is based in Geneva. But I happened to catch him while he was in China for a conference. He explained to me that the Chinese are being actually quite patient at the moment. I think China's response in general is is quite uh, patient, actually. But patient doesn't mean no action. China is quite, at least at, at the minister level or at the head of state level, there's no any statement. The response is mainly from Ofcom, from Spokesman, from Ambassador in Geneva. And so in, in terms of level, it is quite uh, moderate. Also, China has responded to uh, uh, proposed a uh, list of products to be uh, levied tariff in responding to steel and aluminum measures. But China has not yet raised any uh, proposal in responding to the 301. So far, there's no uh, proposed retaliation from China yet. The second thing is um, China said that uh, we do not want to create a war, but if other people uh, were to create a war, we will uh, defend our interests. Trump also said there is a great negotiation, great bargaining, uh, on the way. So maybe China is also showing its willingness, has shown its willingness to join the negotiation to try to find a solution. Uh, Wallace, I've seen you've written on the subject of trade uh, extensively. And, and one of your articles talked about the US and the EU needing to treat China more fairly on trade. Now, mm-hmm. d- does that mean uh-huh. that you, you feel up till now that China hasn't had fair treatment from the the U.S. and the EU? There is a problem between China and the EU and China and the U.S., particularly on recognizing China's uh, progress has been made uh, after China's accession to the WTO. But also, I think it's unfair for, for China that the U.S. and China do not want to fulfill their commitments 16 years ago when China joined the WTO. U.S., EU, and other members of WTO and China agreed that within the first 15 years, uh, when they're doing anti-dumping investigations, they can use other countries, the third countries, price, in, de- in uh, decide whether China is dumping or not dumping. They have the obligation to just to uh, uh, fulfill their promise, their commitment It almost feels that this point in time is inevitable, given the history and how much China has progressed, uh, even compared to 15 years ago in terms of their weight of global trade. And although commitments are made to countries when when they aren't as big, um, and then once they become a competitor effectively, then attitudes start Mm. to change. And the conversation seems to be changing. And certainly over the last decade, you have a combination of Western uh, trade practices and globalization showing its weakness and possible, possibly even its failure. And on the other hand, you've seen the emergence of China as a dominant trading uh, country. And in particular, when it comes to technology, intellectual property and sensitive uh, innovation that suddenly... 
countries like the United States are becoming more wary about potentially sharing to countries like China. So I feel like it's not just about today and Donald Trump or any particular person, but a kind of path that we've been taking as China continued to grow and become essentially the world's second largest economy. Yeah, I, I like your I like your point in describing that uh, uh, this uh, anti-China or this frustration about China is not new. It has been there for quite a while, actually. So the argument has been there. Trump maybe changed a little bit of style, assertive, tried to uh, do something differently. So, so in that sense. Uh, it makes the issue more uh, visible, more bring issue to the public debate. Uh, of course, it's also partly triggered by domestic political dynamics. I mean, politics aside, if if I look from the Chinese perspective as well over the last few years, uh, China's probably had quite a bit of reason to feel that their philosophy, their approach to trade and business practices is is proving to be far more successful than in, in Europe or the United States, where they're still reeling from the consequences that led to the financial crisis and, and, and uh, the downturn over the last few years. And I wonder if, if attitudes... And from your perspective, knowing knowing the China better than me, uh, w- would there be a certain amount, a case of, well, you know, in China, we know how to do things better. So perhaps we shouldn't be dictated to within the WTO by countries who are having bigger problems than us. The China definitely become not only richer economically, but also uh, more confident. They also feel, well, maybe now we need to say goodbye to neoliberalism and look at uh, what China has been doing. Not only China model, but also East Asia model. And let's say the end game is somehow a trade war. I imagine that given our previous examples of trade wars are very much from the last century, that we don't actually know what a 21st century trade war will look like. It's, it's going to be new territory for everyone, given all the factors that we've been discussing. At this stage, uh, I think they're still uh, they're just more words. Look at the what Trump announced last uh, last Thursday. The first is uh, these measures is only proposed; it's not real. The second thing is also allow around forty five days to uh, finalize the list and uh, to consult uh, the public stakeholders, but also, more importantly, I think both U.S. and China are engaged in intensive negotiations. In China, uh, there's a very good chance that uh, both sides will get a, a, a good deal by the end of uh, this 45-time uh, framework. My feeling is quite positive. I, I feel that it's very likely that both sides will uh, reach agreement. I mean, the Chinese, I assume, won't do anything that will jeopardize their longer-term planning, like the Belt and Road Initiative, for example. Mm -hmm. How does sort of short-term wars of words with the United States Mm -hmm. affect that wider vision? I think China's vision is kind of two-pronged approach. First, I think China believes, has a strong belief in multilateral trading system. China believes that the best way 
network disputes still is, of course, negotiations, but also better to through WTO system instead of with unilateral retaliations. If you use unilateral retaliations, which means you use illegal measures against illegal measures for the U.S. So, so I think in terms of philosophy, China does not want to do that. China wants to do something legal, a legal way to respond to illegal measures. The second part, China has been thinking any complementary approach, such as Belt and Road, to complement existing system. On the one hand, this existing trade finance system has its merits, like WTO system, like World Bank IMF. But on the other hand, China feels those systems, to some extent, is not moving, or is moving very slow. So China is, is feel a little bit impatient about the slowness, the stagnancy in the WTO negotiations, for, for example. I think it's an open platform. Personally, I, I, I think it's a brilliant idea. Like an open platform, open platform to invite all countries along the route to join it, to develop, to jointly develop program. Although there's no clear policy framework at this moment, but it is possible that in, let's say, middle and longer term, there will be some uh, institutions, it's already some institutions like AIID, uh, UDM Bank, but I think in the longer run, in middle and longer term, there might be new institutions, more institutions, more policy frameworks will be developed if the multilateral credit system that was Dr. Wallace Cheng from the International Center for Trade and Sustainable Development talking about the Chinese vision for trade relations within this current context of heightened tensions and what everyone's worried about, of course, a global trade war out of the 1930s. But I think, as you've heard from this episode, that that's not necessarily guaranteed. And even if there was some kind of conflict on that level, it probably wouldn't look like uh, it did in the 1930s. Uh, we've heard from the European Union as well. Uh, everyone's waiting to see if the uh, US actually does pull the trigger on these tariffs that they've been promising. And global markets have been reacting. There's certainly been a lot of volatility out there as people gauge how serious this could be throughout the rest of 2018. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. You've been listening to the Business Extra podcast. Please join us again next